When uh, Late Night Live travelled to Cambodia in 2015, it was 40 years after the Khmer Rouge had marched into the capital and unleashed its reign of terror and genocide. By the time they were overthrown, about four years later, between one and a half and two million people had been killed. That's one-fifth of the entire population. One of the most memorable interviews of our time there was with Yuk Chang, Executive Director of the Documentation Centre of Cambodia, or DC CAM, as it's known. Yuk is a survivor of the killing field and has dedicated his life to uncovering the truth about what happened. And his work has been vital in the proceedings of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, or the ECCC. Now, last month, the court delivered its final verdict, rejecting an appeal by the regime's last surviving leader, bringing to an end a process that, after almost two decades and a cost of around half a billion Australian dollars, has led to just three convictions. Now, to discuss the legacy of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, Yuk Chang joins us now, once again from Non Pen, and with me in the studio is Dr Christoph Schwerfeld, a senior lecturer at Macquarie Law School, and uh, Christoph has previously worked in Cambodia as a senior advisor with the German development agency GIZ and was an advisor to the victim support section of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, and I welcome you both. Yuk, after all these years, what does the end of the tribunal mean to you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, after all this year, um, you know, it, it, I'm still in the process to conclude what does it mean, but, you know, immediately I think that is a very meaningful process to many of us, or almost to all of the survivors. And I think that we would have such a deep regret had not we came to this far in terms of, you know, bring the senior leader on trials and have all, you know, facing to the demand from the global community to respond to them on what happened in Cambodia during 1975 to 79. I, as a survivor, I feel that I, I have done what I could, uh, you know, to to bring this process into, uh, to this far. You were about 14 years old when the Khmer Rouge came to power. I've never forgotten what you told me in our interview, but I'd like you to repeat the essence of it. What was your life like? The daily life, uh, you know, you woke up at four without foods, without shoes, uh, you have one pair of clothes for an entire four years, uh, you, you know, you spend the rest of your days in the field, ditching canals, um, sometimes you have food, sometimes you have a two spoon of water during the summer times, and you witness things, you know, that some of your colleagues being executed in front of you, um, you don't have a chance to See your families. Um, you don't have food to eat for several months. 
as a kid of age of 14, I don't understand why this happened to me. Uh, you know, I had to be separated from my families. And, you know, it's uh, the daily life. It's just like um, something that you can't even describe in words or in writings uh, because it's it's beyond human imagination that that human can do this to to other humans, you know, uh, themselves. I can never forget you telling me that you were nearly beaten to death for stealing some grains of rice for your sister who was pregnant. Yeah. Well, you know, she, my sister alive. She's one of the survivors today, and I am proud. And but what I would say now, um, it's it's a shameful act, perhaps to a lot of young population today, because. When you steal something that people would consider, you know, it is a bad act. But then I, I had no other choice, watching my sister, you know, being pregnant and no food to eat. So I decided to went to the to steal, you know, the grain of rice from that were fell off on the ground, knowing that such an act also would consider as a crime and can be punished. But out of you know desperation, you know, desperately that we need something to eat, so I, 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 I took it and I steal it. Then I, you know, uh, I got arrested. And I think that they, they've been watching me and they trapped me. You know, uh, they know where I would escape. I I saw the, the guard from other direction, but I think they've been watching me and then so I was trapped and got arrested. And it was beat up severely with the ax, with the knife. Uh, I didn't cry, you know. I I, I accept the punishment because I know it was the wrong thing to do. But you know, uh, years later, I think it's unfair. I think it's it's a brutal, it's uh, unacceptable. Christoph, from the very start, the tribunal was fraught with challenges, and of course, we have the the paradox that Hun Sen was himself a Khmer Rouge military officer and uh, keen to limit. The, the hypothetical court's jurisdiction. Yeah, I mean, this, these were very challenging starting points for the justice process. When I first arrived in 2007, someone like you could have already worked for yeah, almost two decades on promoting um, truth and justice for the Khmer Rouge. So it was a very long process to arrive at the time that to, the prime ministers in Cambodia requested access from the United Nations to actually initiate a justice process. And these kind of politics that were there from the beginning have permeated the Khmer Rouge tribunal process throughout. It's a sort of unique hybrid court, isn't it, with Cambodian and international judges? It is the result from these kind of political negotiations um, where we both have, uh, in terms of the staffing, in terms of the laws that we apply, a unique kind of hybrid constellation uh, that hasn't been in these kind of circumstances applied to any other tribunal before. Christoph, how was uh, how was it funded? Because funding was a big hurdle. Yeah, contrary to the other international tribunals that we often know, like the former tribunal for Yugoslavia, Rwanda, or the ICC, the Khmerish tribunal is funded by voluntary contribution, not by assessed contributions from the UN budget. And that means essentially that the tribunal had to constantly fundraise for its operations throughout its existence. Australia has been the third largest donor. At least the third largest donor, exactly. So 
What's its real ultimate purpose? To educate the world or to educate the Cambodians? I mean, for the tribunal, the ultimate purpose uh, would be to uh, deliver justice uh, for some more for the survivors, but also for the society at large. And yes, as you rightly point out, there is also an educational component to it in that many Cambodians wanted to know the truth about the regime. Now, it's significant, Christoph, that the court has taken place in country, in effect. Exactly. And this is also a distinct feature of the court compared to some of these other tribunals that were located far away from the locations where the crimes occurred. Here we have a court that was located inside in the country, making it politically more challenging for the institution, but also enabling much more engagement with society at large. Back to you, York. Tell us how your organisation, DC CAM, helped with the tribunal. Well, we basically provide the historical evidence to all sides, you know, to the prosecutor, to the defense, to the civil party lawyers, and to anyone that that have access, that, that, that wish to obtain the materials. We have provided more than half a million of material so that the court can build up the case and follow, you know, um, from there. And we also help to bring survivor to witness for us seeing the process is also justice. So we bring about 500 survivors each month to observe the hearing at the tribunal. And we also do public education. And on top of that, we, we think that it's an opportunity uh, to also address the teaching of genocide in the school curriculum, which we managed to do so. And you, now it's as, as, well, as well as your massive archive, you also conducted oral histories, didn't you, with both former Khmer Rouge and the victims? Correct. We, we generate the sources of individuals from our archive and we, we, we divide into categories of interior, one for the survivor, like purely victim who suffered by the Khmer Rouge, another group is someone who served the Khmer Rouge regime at any level, even driver, cook, and so forth. Because each questionnaire requires different approach. For the former Khmer rules, we cannot mislead or ask questions for them to, to be self-incriminating or violate their right because we know what they did. But we managed to conduct these stories in 1995 until today. But today, and people more open now even more than 25 years, 20 years ago. Christoph, the world is waiting with fascinating horror for someone from the Trump regime to do serious time. Meanwhile, back in Cambodia, this great process has resulted in a total of three convictions. Look, um, international criminal justice has always been marked by long trials, complicated um, proceedings and investigations, simply because of the nature and the scale of the crimes. So that was something that was to be expected. In Cambodia, we have obviously the added layer that, first of all, a lot of the accused were very old. So roughly half of the accused have died before even convictions could have been reached. And then there, were the, there was the politics that made uh, additional prosecutions beyond those senior leaders this impossible. Is this is because Hun Sen wanted to make sure only the very top officers would be charged. Exactly. That is the, mainly the uh, remaining members of the Central Committee of the Khmer Rouge Alive, as well as Doik, the uh, head of the S21 Security Centre. I remember 
learning about that security centre, 16,000 to 20,000 people entered and less than 20 survived. Yeah, I mean, this is, is really a hallmark of the Khmer Rouge regime and um, the central kind of memorial and museum site um, for, uh, for the crimes. Have any of the senior leaders ever expressed remorse, Christoph? Um, the senior leaders themselves, not, but Doig, um, like who led the, um, the S21 security centre, has at multiple occasions expressed statements of remorse throughout the proceedings, when, particularly when confronting survivors in courtroom. You're given the fact that just three people were held accountable. Do you feel that justice has been served? For me, it's um, process is matter, not the number of people that you prosecuted. And, you know, a process that people can participate, the world can join, people can criticize, can make sense out of it. I think that's more important. I mean, you, you think about who should be prosecuted, it can be a lot of people, even though you kill a person, even though you harm a person, you are also more responsible. So from beginning, I never look at the number, but look at the process so that we all can participate. I remember being in Cambodia and realising that survivors and former perpetrators are still living side by side. Correct. I mean, it's hard to separate them, you know, because sometimes once a perpetrator and later become a victim, or the other one was a victim and later become the perpetrator, it's one of the most difficult things that we have to confront on a daily basis as of now. But the tribunal helped help to fill that gap that we can come closer and uh, more understanding. And also with the growing of young population, uh, you know, it uh, is separate from look at each other differently. Your Cuba conducted surveys to find out how Cambodians feel about the work of the tribunal, I understand that uh, support has been consistent with at least 80%. Great. You know, we do this regularly since 1995, and I always discovered that 80% at least of the people believe that this issue must be addressed and they support any process with international participation to provide us final judgment. You know, we have small percentage of people who disagree at least from 8 to 15 percent all the time, and which we can understand. I think without the people who disagree, I think it, it made the court, you know, it's, it's sort of like a shame trial. But in fact, there are always two views uh, about the trial from beginning until the end. But the majority is always in favour of the tribunal. 80 percent support. I understand, however, that only half the survivors have actually followed the trials. Uh, you know, people look at the trial in different ways. For example, when Ian Sri was arrested, many survivors feel that justice being done, so they move on. Uh, when it was, you know, 2016, when the court announced the lifetime imprisonment for all these leaders, people feel that this is done, you know. So you can see that the number who follow the tribunal, it's, it's decreasing, not because they don't support, but because they feel a matter of satisfaction out of the process and they, they use it to find their own closure. Christoph, can you tell me more about the way that victims were able to participate in the proceedings? It's not as simple as it might seem. 
It isn't. Even though the court is based in Cambodia, it was still difficult for obviously uh, a lot of the elderly uh, survivors who lived in rural areas of Cambodia to access the proceedings. So here we have uh, like an active network of civil society and DCCAM was one of those many NGOs that tried to connect and build a bridge to survivors in the provinces of Cambodia and the court by going back and forward and uh, enable them to participate in the proceedings, including as civil parties, as we call them. Civil parties, not just witnesses. Exactly. And this is a distinct feature, again, based on Cambodia's uh, civil law tradition, that victims have the right to participate as an own party in the proceedings alongside the defence and the prosecution. Christoph, anything given to victims by way of compensation, reparation? Uh, reparations was piece and part of the Khmer Rouge mandate from the beginning. Uh, there have been big debates what would be adequate and appropriate in this context. And from the beginning, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal has limited uh, reparations to what we call in the rules collective and moral reparations, meaning more collective and symbolic reparations. I'm sorry, I, I just want to dwell on that. Collective and moral reparations. That sounds lovely, but is it just feel good? It is essentially perhaps what this institution, which is a criminal tribunal, was able to deliver in a very challenging context. Remember, the crimes have been committed more than 30, 40 years ago. So anything that the tribunal would have delivered would always be symbolic in nature. And because only few survivors were ever able to participate, I think a lot of Cambodians agreed that a collective dimension was important to these kind of reparations. Tell me about the National Remembrance Day. So there were a lot of ideas what kind of form these kind of collective and symbolic reparations could do. And there were, uh, from the beginning, ideas and proposals circulating around that a National Remembrance Day would be an appropriate choice. There were lots of discussion around the dates. And in the end, the Cambodian government turned an existing Memorial Day into the National Remembrance Day through legislation. Yuk, uh, in the past, you have said you hoped the tribunal would help Cambodians move forward and heal. Has that kind of reconciliation happened yet, or is it happening? Uh, the process of the tribunal helped us to continue to move on and heal. Uh, you know, give a lot of legitimacy to anything else that post-ECCC will be doing, for example, you know, right now we began to pair young uh, generation with the survival for to collect all our history, and uh, people are very happy about that. And you know, having see all young these people in the village and carry a piece of pencil and the paper and come, you know, from door to door asking their life story. I think that with the knowledge of the tribe, you don't have done something. It brings us closer to healing, and I think that also people are aging. They look at these things differently compared from the way they looked at it 20 years ago. So all of this come into place. And But again, you know, it's never be the same. When, when a glass been broken, doesn't matter how hard you try to bring all those pieces to put them back together, it will never be the same. Your, your uh, surveys show that uh, 26% of people still suffer nightmares of the period. I suspect you're amongst that number. Yes, uh, we're working closely with an NGO called TPO that provides group counselling, individual counselling, and I think that those considered the most severe 
you know, a person who lost the entire family or witnessed the killing of the husband or children or someone being, you know, uh, doesn't make sense of what happened and still living under poverty today. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of them around. And also because of limited services in terms of, uh, you know, public health, uh, mental health, uh, directly to the survivors, so those still a, a crucial thing to deal with. York, do you worry about the younger generation losing touch with this history? Uh, I do, but I think it's going to be hard for them to escape their own history because it began from home. It began from their parents, their grandparents. It's going to be with them, and they just cannot escape from it. And at school right now, it's compulsory in terms of teaching on the Khmer history as well. So it, the youth in Cambodia would find it hard, even though they want to forget, or even they want to not to engage because it's it's begin from home. It's at home. Christoph, the court is now being wound up. What work is there still to be done in Cambodia? I mean, first of all, I can just join you in stressing the importance of work with the youth and the next generation. So that kind of educational mission that you mentioned at the very beginning, I think that is a mission that will continue. And many organizations like DCCAM, but also universities, will play an important role. The second thing is to preserve the archives, make them accessible. And that will be an important tool for this kind of uh, educational mission for future generations. I think there's also a job to do to remind Cambodia and indeed the world what the context for the Khmer Rouge was, you know, to go back before. Exactly. The mandate of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal was always limited just to 75 and 79. This kind of broader story, like the broader story about the context of the Khmer Rouge violence. Uh, obviously, it also includes the time before the Khmer Rouge came to power, but also the time afterwards during the 80s. This has not been subject by the tribunal, and it is still a story that will have to be told. I remember asking you this question in Cambodia, Yuk. What are your hopes for your country? Are you optimistic about its future? I'm, I'm still optimistic. I think that Cambodia, you know, have a very high resilience, have the ability to, you know, to face all this difficulty in the last 70 years. I think that they will manage. Um, it's just like we don't know which direction they are going to, but I think that they, they, they will be able to stand up and, you know, to rebuild after the Khmer Rouge and to, to grow. A sorry, a final question to you, Christoph. Lessons from Cambodia to be learnt when it comes to holding trials for genocide or war crimes in other parts? First of all, uh, one lesson from Cambodia is sometimes it just takes a very long time to arrive there, like in this case, more than 30 years. So this is perhaps an encouraging note in one way or the other for some of these very protracted situations like Myanmar and elsewhere that are still waiting for justice. The second is like uh, justice for mass atrocities will always be enmeshed in politics, will always be part and the institution will always have to maneuver these kind of politics very carefully. And involvement of civil society and victims will maximise ownership and engagement. So that, that is also something important from Cambodia. Gentlemen, I thank you. Yuk Chang, Executive Director of the Documentation Centre of Cambodia, and Dr Christoph Speerfeld, 
Senior Lecturer at Macquarie Law School, oh, and Adjunct Professor at the Centre for the Study of Humanitarian Law at the Royal University of Law and Economics in Cambodia. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.